The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. invite you to turn in your Bible, use the Pew Bible if you wish to turn to Luke chapter 10, Luke the third gospel we've been studying for some time now. And I'm picking up in the midst of something we dealt with last time, uh, just a very brief setting here, is the sending out of 72 broader disciples of Jesus. He had with him not just the 12, but others who were believing in him. And they numbered 72 that he sent out by pairs to act by faith, to live by faith, and to announce the kingdom of God, to heal in the name of Christ. And those folks went out and saw God do wonderful things. I'm going to pick up as they have returned, coming back to Jesus, verse 17, and read through verse 24 of Luke chapter 10. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, Even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy, so nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. And this is God's holy word. All of our lives, we as men and women on this earth, strive for happiness. We can't help it. Happiness is something we want. And if we cannot find full-fledged happiness, we will take a part of it that you might call momentary pleasure. Human beings pursue happiness in all kinds of ways, through friendship, in marriage, hobbies, possessions, material security, education, sports, you name it. We're trying to be happy. Sooner or later, if you pursue any one of these things I've mentioned, all legitimate unto themselves as an idol, or you prize it in such a way that you say, all my happiness is lodged in this one thing, that idol is going to turn on you 
and the happiness that you derive from it will eventually disappoint. I believe it was C.S. Lewis who best taught me to look for something better than happiness. Lewis called it joy. Joy that in his definition and the Bible's definition is like an underground stream in the soul arising and staying there, giving great peace and contentment in God's calling. If you'd want to contrast it, you could say that happiness is kind of like a day at Hershey Park. We recently took 11 grandchildren. It wasn't Hershey Park, but another amusement park. And went for an expensive day for Papa to treat all the kids to basically all the rides they wanted. And we came home with a a load of snapshots. I was just looking back at them and thought, well, yes, that was an expensive day, but what's the reward? Well, here's the reward. All those pictures of the grins on their faces, on the rides, hands up in the air on the roller coaster, and everything else. Great happiness for 11 children I prized that day. But happiness of that kind, you see, goes away. It fades like a morning mist the next day, and the best you might have is a memory or a snapshot. The human soul is made to experience something that we know must be out there beyond ourselves, and The philosopher said there's a God-shaped hole in us that more or less aches until we realize this thing called the joy of knowing God. The return of our souls to that place in Adam's paradise where once we knew God and walked with Him until we deliberately walked away and took our own way. Joy is very different than happiness. It's something that You can't grab by any formula or any pleasure or paying any amount of money to achieve it. In fact, it is God-directed and therefore God-bestowed. It comes to you as a gift from your Creator by faith in Jesus Christ. It's the serious, awe-inspiring business of coming to know your Creator God in a saving way through Jesus, His Son. That joy is what the Bible, in one occasion, calls the pearl of great price. It's the foretaste of heaven. It's the sweetest thing you could ever look for or ever possess. Now, in Luke 10, we hear of this joy breaking out among 72 disciples of Jesus after they had gone out on this training errand of ministry. And in our passage, it's also expressed by Jesus himself. And I'm asking whether this joy is something we too can taste and experience in the same ways that it's told about here. And just reminding you of the context, after he had announced his path to the cross a bit earlier than this in chapter 9, Peter confessed, you were the Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus immediately said, there's a cross coming. And there's also a cross for you disciples to take up in commitment to me and follow me. And we saw some of the cost of that last time at the end of chapter 9 when even the highest legitimate relationships we have in this world, relationships to parents who we are supposed to honor before God, cannot be put before our relationship to Christ as his disciples. Now, These disciples who were trained in that, who were sent out to totally depend by faith 
on Jesus to provide for them and for even what they ate and where they stayed and the power of ministry have experienced that and have come back, and they're just bubbling over. They're full of joy. This practical seminar has succeeded in the best way. And now in their ministry debriefing here, there's this reverberating note of joy that I believe can teach us about the root system of the joy that every Christian can have in a world of uncertainty and terror and disaster and disappointment on every side of us. I put the first subject first because Jesus put it that way. He prioritized it as the first preeminent joy in verse 20. I state the point saying this, the greatest of all joys is your name written in heaven. Jesus said it. Don't rejoice because spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, the exercise of ministry, the ability to declare Christ, to see people healed and do these things is a great thing. And, and they were happy about that. But I think Christ was cautioning them, don't base your joy on the wrong thing. Just because you see God doing great works, base your joy preeminently before anything else on the fact that you are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, I'd remind you that this is a frequent biblical image, both Old Testament and New, this book of life. Is it some literal book? I think not. It's a figure of speech, but it's a very dramatic way of picturing for us what we would call a a Bible truth that runs through the Bible from Old Testament to New, the truth of divine election. The idea that God in His mysterious power and omniscience has known from all eternity who will be His, not just in a, in a general way as a class of people, but even those individuals who will be His, that He has planned and He has even recorded from ancient times those saints of His in the Old Testament. He knew us before we ever came into being or ever there was any influence in our lives that would have led us to Christ. And He knows future generations, if Christ tarries, who will yet come to Him. He knows them by their names. Now, there are many illustrations of this book, so to speak, in the Scripture. We think of Exodus chapter 32 where Moses is praying for disobedient Israel. And he's telling the Lord, he says, Lord, there's no good reason why you should spare these people. They don't deserve it. But he says, Lord, if I'm your chosen servant and if I am written in your book of life, I pray to you, blot me out of your book if you have to before you turn away from Israel. Daniel chapter 12 has that prophet, Daniel, prophesying of a day when God's people, say, he says there, I quote, God's people will be delivered, everyone whose name is found written in your book. Revelation, all the way over to the end of the Bible, has numerous references of this, more than one. An example is Revelation 13.8, where we hear that the names of God's saved people were this, quote, written before the foundation of the world in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain. This is a truth you cannot deny. It's through the whole Bible. God speaks of having recorded in advance the names of those who would come to believe. It's a very similar thing that happens on election day when my wife and I go to vote at the Leola Town Hall. We walk in and 
go to the proper table, and uh, here are a couple of workers with a great big wide book spread out in front of them. And there's, there are always two of them. And look, I guess the process is that two people have to verify this, and they ask our names, and we tell them, and they turn the page to the R's. Ah, yes, Michael Rogers, you're here. And I'm allowed to vote because I'm in the book. I'm registered. And in their eyes, I am one who can cast a ballot. Well, we would be mistaken again if we over-literalize this idea of a great book. But yet, I think the image does tell us that the Lord has enrolled in advance those who are His people. The Scripture says this in many different ways. We don't put our own names there. If there's a handwriting in that book, it's the handwriting of the Lord who enters the names. It's the eternal, sovereign God who is the author of salvation and the guardian of that book of life. He is the, the recorder of elections, if you will, to whom you must report to see if you are in the book. Now you say, how do I know if I'm in this book? Well, you can know, of course. You can know if you have come to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Or you didn't come to confess that. That truth did not come upon you. That faith did not awaken in you by your own total doing. Once you realized that you had, were a worse offender before God than you ever actually imagined you were, but at the same time that Christ stands as a better, stronger more perfect defense attorney on your behalf than you ever thought you could have on your case, you come to God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me for Jesus' sake. That's the confession of someone who's in the book. The Holy Spirit, it is, who have worked upon you to bring alive your profession of faith to God that brought to fruition what was written. And the Scripture also tells us of this book that the great final day of our accounting before God after death, or at Christ's return, that book figures in. Revelation 3, verse 5, has Jesus say about anyone who trusts in his righteousness this promise. He says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. But God has written, and then His Holy Spirit has brought to reality by your profession of faith in Christ. This will be confessed for you on your behalf before your Father. And once that is written, there will be no changing of that book. There will be no last-minute insertions or, or corrections you know how we all, I know you younger folks don't even know what this stuff is, but if you're 40 years old or more, you know what whiteout was. Remember the days when we had typewriters, and the only way you could fix something was with a, a bottle of white liquid and a little brush, and you, you covered over, and then tried to type over that, and it was always a mess. But you had this stuff called whiteout that you tried to make changes in the record. There's no whiteout in God's book. There's no retyping. God has written this amazing thing that from all eternity He knows and then He works out through those He has foreknown this great chain of redemption so that those who have claimed Christ prove that they are written in His book. What a security that is. To know you're registered in heaven. To know you have an adoption certificate. 
We're praying for one of our families here. We just prayed in Sunday school for the Robinson family who hopefully have their daughter long-awaited on the way to them from Ethiopia. Adoption process, agonizing, long, at the mercy of another government. Hopefully, in about a week, mom and daughter will be back home. Dad and sons are awaiting it with joy and anticipation. That is the joy of a Christian, to know where we stand, to have our certificates sealed in our Father. What better joy can we ever have? There's a story told of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great preachers of the 20th century whom you know I greatly admired. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones was in demand to preach everywhere all over Britain, everywhere he went. Thousands of people happily heard him. He had an amazing influential ministry. But in 1980, late in that year, he was nearing his death. We died in the winter of 81. And he was confined to his bedroom. He couldn't talk very well because his lungs would fill up and he just couldn't even speak much of the time. A visitor came and spoke to Dr. Lloyd-Jones, this influential man of God, and and said to him, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, how are you coping now that your ministry is so confined here to this one room? And this man, this popular preacher, influential man, not able to leave his bedroom or communicate other than a few phone calls or letters, said, I am rejoicing that my name is written in heaven and I am perfectly content. Dr. Lloyd-Jones understood the root of a Christian's joy. He knew who he belonged to and where he was going. I pray that's the root of your joy and that you know your name is in that book today. Secondly, I think our text informs us of the amazing joy of sharing in Christ's victory over evil. Now, that's what these disciples immediately came back rejoicing about. The demons fled from us. It was amazing. I mean, what was more powerful than a demon exorcism? They had watched Jesus do it, but now they did it in the name of Jesus, and they were astonished. They said, wow, look at what we were able to do. I think Jesus was warning them against spiritual pride. I spoke with one of our members this week about a ministry in Lancaster County that this person was concerned about that puts far greater undue influence on demonology than they ought to and on deliverance from demons where almost every difficulty and every illness and and every sin is caused by a demon and and the whole subject gets far bloated and, and exploded beyond its practical emphasis in the Bible. And I think we need to be very careful about that that we wouldn't start prizing you know, gifts from God, such as being able to heal or, or being able to do things that are spectacular, like these folks were, and prize the gifts of God at the expense of the grace of God, which is the great thing. Now, I want you to notice the, the expression here in verse 18. I, I touched on it last week. I want to deal with it a little more now. When Jesus says this rather enigmatic statement, as far as them casting out demons, he makes this statement, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I didn't tell you last time that there's a a whole discussion over this as to when exactly this fall of Satan occurred. What does this actually refer to? And the debate basically has three channels of, of options. It could be that Jesus was referring to that epic 
fall of Satan before the world was ever created. He was a fallen angel, you remember. He tried to vaunt himself, exalt himself ahead of God. We can read about that in Isaiah. And fell from his position of eminence because he wanted the glory of God for himself. Jesus existed before creation. He witnessed that. Is that what he was talking about? I saw Satan fall from heaven. It would sound like it could be. But doesn't it make more sense, option two, that he was saying, I saw Satan fall in a sense as you people, you 72, went out and ministered and and his servants fled from you. So it's a present tense, not a past tense. But then there's the third option. Was Jesus peering into the future and saying, prophetically, I can see, not past tense, but I, I see the fact that Satan is sure to fall in the final day, and that what Revelation says about him being consigned to the pit of hell and so on is, is going to happen. I was pondering this and reading all the articles, uh, the different commentaries back and forth, and, and while I, I, Article 2 seems perhaps the best option, the more I thought on it and dwelt on it, I thought, wait a minute, why do we have to choose among these? There's actually a sense in which all three of these could be in what Jesus is saying. I was there. I saw Satan in his original fall. I was here praying for you as you went out in ministry, and I saw him flee as you announced the name of Christ triumphant over demons. And I also know the future and that he's going to have a great crashing fall from which he will never recover in a future day. I think all three of those have something to do with this. Jesus is saying the battle in the heavenlies, the cosmic battle for who has dominion over you is a decided battle, and evil has not won. Christ has won. I don't know if you've checked the headlines even just last night, and I just real quickly saw the paper this morning, haven't read the articles, but where Muammar Gaddafi is at, nobody even seems to know where he is right now. You know that he's been fighting for his life as a dictator in Libya, a strong-arm dictator there now for decades. But this man has lost his hold. He's blustering. He commands a certain amount of firepower, and yet even his troops aren't staying loyal to him. Why? Because this dictatorship is broken. This man can make a lot of noise and a lot of threat and even some real harm, and yet his dictatorship is broken. And that's the way it is with Satan. He makes a lot of noise and does a lot of harm. But his dictatorship over the sons and daughters of God in Jesus Christ is smashed. It doesn't exist anymore. He can bring his schemes against us. He can harm us. He can do things that that we would think are terrible. Ultimately, he cannot cause us harm. He cannot take us out of our Savior's hand. Even if we were killed by some device of his, he doesn't win. And Jesus says in verse 19 here that these disciples are going to trample on snakes and scorpions and be safe. Now, folks, that isn't an instruction to Presbyterians that we need to have snake handling in our worship service. That's not what it's about. It's a figure of speech, obviously. He's saying you are going to tread upon the dangerous vipers of evil in this world, and you can be safe if you go against them in my name. You can... Have victories over evil in your own life as you confess sin and spread it out before your God and say, here it is, it's ugly, I hate it, I repent of it, forgive me. And God will. He can bring redemption. 
from all the ways that evil gets a hold of his people. Romans 16.20 has Paul making this promise, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I think he had the same thing in mind. Don't forget what your Lord said. You can tread on scorpions. Evil does not have the upper hand in the life of a Christian who remembers the one who won the victory in which we share even today. Now, thirdly, we go to the last part here in Luke 10, 21 to 24. And yes, every Christian can rejoice that his name is written in heaven and rejoice that in some visible way the victory of Christ over evil can affect us. But here's a third thing, and it's a great one. This third point is that the privileged joy of receiving God's revelation of himself is the pinnacle of joy. I want you to see that in verse 21, Jesus stops talking to the disciples there and talks to God. He turns to prayer. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things, the things that they had just been talking about, from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. This is pretty amazing stuff here. First of all, you probably don't realize this is the only time, you won't believe me, but go search and see if you can find another one. It's the only time in all of the four Gospels where it's recorded specifically that Jesus rejoiced. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus never had any joy in his life, but it's the only time that his rejoicing is singled out and emphasized. And notice it was rejoicing through the Holy Spirit. And then the word for that joy of Jesus is a different word. It even needs a new vocabulary word, which in the Greek is is the sort of epitome word of joy that means exuberant ecstasy. Joy to the highest power, if you will. The rarest joy that there is is what? It's the joy that the three persons of the Godhead share among themselves. That's what this is. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, reveling in a perfect harmony with each other and with abounding delight in the work that God is doing in the world. Jesus, you know, in a sense there for a minute, was, was outside of the crowd. The 72 were still there. They heard him pray this, but he wasn't talking directly to them. He was talking to his Father. Father, I rejoice! at the marvel of what you're doing, and these 72 people prove it. You don't reveal the knowledge of yourself to the scholars in Jerusalem who hate me and are already designing to kill me. You reveal it to babies, naive people. That's what these 72 were. They weren't scholars. They weren't religious experts. They were the simple people, the common people, the blue-collar people. You revealed this to nobodies. Father, how I rejoice. How wonderful is your revelation. You see, this whole discussion of of election and the sovereignty of God in salvation so often provokes arguments. Oh, people say, how can you talk about God's sovereignty? Why does God save this person and not that person? And we say, we don't know. God is sovereign. It's up to him. And Jesus says the same thing. He says, it's a pure wonder. Father, you don't tell us why you're doing these things, but it's amazing that you do it. You don't owe this revelation of yourself to anybody. But when you give it, you don't give it to the scholars and the PhDs. 
You give it to the babies, to the uninformed people, to the people who would have no way of coming to it on their own. And therefore, we see that the glory for this thing belongs to you, Father. Now, I could belabor this in abstract terms, but I want to give you a true life example of what I'm talking about. Someone who actually was one of those high and mighty people, in a manner of speaking, to whom the Lord revealed himself. It was a a great uh, confounding thing to me in seminary to discover something I didn't know until that level of my education, that there were people with PhDs in Europe, many of them studying in Germany especially, and sorry if you're German, I have some German blood, but I'm I'm not proud of the fact that Germany has been the the source of a lot of the worst critical study of the Bible in the 20th century and onward. And there are people who get their doctorates at Marburg and great universities in Germany, and then they they become Bible experts teaching in the great universities of Europe. And I would have thought, my goodness, these people have studied, they have learning way beyond me, they can speak and, and deal with three or four different biblical languages. They must be holy people. Well, it's amazing to find out that some of them aren't even Christians. And in fact, many of them would not even pretend to be Christians. Such a person was Dr. Etta Linnemann, a German-born scholar. She was a protege of the great New Testament liberal critic Rudolf Bultmann. You may not know that name, but that is a name that if you were you were recommended by Dr. Bultmann, you had entree to any inner circle of scholarship in Europe. So famous was he. So Etta Lindemann in the 70s got her own doctorate, wrote some books. They sold well. She was moving upward in this elite clique of scholars who were experts in the minutia of the Bible without knowing the God of the Bible, astonishing as that seems. But Etta Lindemann also in those same years was spiraling downward in her personal life into alcohol addiction and depression and broken relationships. I'm going to quote and let her tell her own story about what happened to her. Somebody who was up there in the high muckety-muck scholarship of this world. Here's what happened. Quote, At the point of my despair, God led me to meet some vibrant Christians who knew Jesus personally as their Lord and Savior. I heard them tell what God had done in their lives in simple, transparent terms. Finally, God spoke to my heart, and by His grace, I too entrusted my life to Jesus. He took me into His saving grasp and began to radically transform me. So much so that one day, with my own two hands, I threw my earlier skeptical writings about the Bible into the trash. My addictions were replaced by a hunger for the Word of God and for Christian fellowship, and by God's grace, I experienced Jesus Christ to be the living name above every name. Praise God. You don't know what that means for someone from that background to experience this. And you know, I was thinking to myself, I bet there are a lot of people in the upper intelligentsia of European skeptical scholarship about the Bible who wonder, whatever happened to that Etta Linneman? Never heard of her again. Where did she go? Today, Dr. Etta Linneman, with her great pedigree of scholarship, happily teaches at a lowly missionary Bible institute 
in Indonesia, equipping pastors to win souls. Jesus said, blessed are the eyes that come to see what you see. Do you understand the privilege that you have as a Christian in this day and age? Understanding what Isaiah only dimly saw, what David longed for, what Elijah trembled to see but could not put together yet fully. You need to rejoice at what God has made known to you, Christian. And if you do not know him, if you're not a person who's been awakened to him in the way Etta Lineman and so many of us have been, and you're saying today, well, I'm just a nobody. I don't have a Ph.D. I'm not high and learned. Good. Good. You don't have as much to unlearn. You're like those 72 who Jesus rejoiced and said, here are perfect seed beds for the truth of God. I rejoice, Father, that you make yourself known to them. Can there be a greater reason in all of life to experience deep joy aside from knowing God as Father and being secure as his child through Jesus Christ because he's opened your eyes to see him and call him Lord? If that's true of you, you possess a joy that is sufficient to carry you on the crest of its wave right through this lifetime and into eternity. Thanks be to God. Our Father, I pray for your joy to be renewed today. There are some Christians here, I have no doubt, who are sad and depressed and discouraged and They're going about dragging their feet and their spirits behind them. Renew their joy. Remind them of their privilege. Raise them up, not in their own power, but in the power of Christ and his spirit in them. And I also pray for someone here who has not yet called him Lord, who has not said you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. May they do that. May they come to do that. And so enter in to this joy that your word says is unspeakable and full of glory. We thank you for Jesus' sake. Amen.